Our sermon text is Luke chapter 1, verses 68 to 80. Well, when you unwrap a Christmas gift, you find joy in the future that that gift represents to you. As soon as you tear through the wrapping paper, even before you've had the chance to use or enjoy whatever it is you've received, if you're like me, you start to envision what the days to come hold now that you have the gift. You start to imagine what life will be like with your new gadget, your new bike, your new candy, or if you came to the youth white elephant gift exchange last night, your new limited edition t-shirt with a picture of Andrew Foray dressed as an elf on it. When you unwrap a present, you might say that the future joy of that gift seeps backward into your present moment, and it makes you happy. Well, our scripture text this morning records a song sung by a man who has just unwrapped, you might say, a wonderful gift, the gift of a newborn child. The man singing the song recorded in our text is named Zechariah, and his newborn baby would become known to history later as John the Baptist. Our sermon text this morning records Zechariah's prophetic song as he praises God, not primarily for the child that he's just received, but for the future that he knows that child's arrival signifies. Look with me at Luke 1, beginning in verse 67, as I read our text. We read there, and his, that is John's father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days." And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare His ways, to give knowledge of salvation to His people in the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, and to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. 
May our gracious God bless the reading and now the preaching and the hearing of his word by his Holy Spirit. I'd like to structure our time in God's word this morning by asking three questions of our text, three-point sermon this morning. First, what is Zechariah doing? Second, what will John do? And third, what will Jesus do? I'll give those to you again as we advance through the text. First question to ask this morning, what is Zechariah doing? Well, of course, there are many ways we could answer that question, uh, but the answer I want to point out to you this morning is this. Zechariah is singing about the king. You can tell from the way our translators have indented these verses differently than the verses that come before and after them, uh, that they believe that these are a song or possibly a poem. Uh, and that matters because songs and poems are a special kind of speech loaded with meaning, images, and emotion. In our text, Zechariah is not just saying something, he is celebrating something. And we might expect that Zechariah would be singing about or celebrating his newborn son, John. But it's very clear, isn't it? Just from reading through the text, the main thing that Zechariah's song is celebrating is the arrival of God's promised king, the son of David. Now look how Zechariah begins his song there in verses 68 to 80. He says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old. From of old, Zechariah says, God's holy prophets have all promised with one unified mouth that God would raise up a source or a horn of salvation in the house of King David. We read one such promise in our Old Testament reading earlier in the service this morning from Psalm 132. Uh, there we saw the scriptures say, The Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body, God says, I will set on your throne Later in the psalm, God says, I will make a horn to sprout for David. We'll return to that horn imagery later uh, in the sermon, Lord willing. God says, I have prepared a lamp for my anointed or my Messiah, my Christ. His enemies I will clothe with shame, but on him his crown will shine. Zechariah, of course, was not descended from David. We read in Luke's gospel earlier that he and his wife are from the tribe of Levi. So Zechariah is saying <clears throat> that the birth of his son John signifies that God is now making good on his promise to David through someone else's child. And very clearly, uh, Luke's gospel take pains to show us that the whole purpose of John's birth is to prepare for Jesus' birth. This idea, not of John's, I'm sorry, Zechariah's son John, but of the son of David, the kingly son of David, dominates Zechariah's song. 
It's there right in the beginning, just as we've seen. It's implicit in the middle of the song from verses 72 to 75. Uh, In the middle of the song, Zechariah is rejoicing that God is now fulfilling his covenant promises to Abraham. Okay, well, if the focus is on the promises to Abraham, why do I say that that's an implicit reference to the son of David? Well, I say that because the Old Testament merges the promises that God gave to Abraham with the promises that God gives to David. Remember, God had promised Abraham innumerable descendants who would live blessedly in the land of Canaan. God had told Abraham that in his offspring, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. In the Old Testament, in whom are all nations blessed? In the offspring of Abraham. Well, throughout the Old Testament, uh, we're told that those promises are going to come to fruition, not only through the offspring of Abraham generally, but through specifically the son of David. So, for example, in Psalm 72, which is a prayer about the son of David, the messianic heir, uh, the psalmist prays that all the nations would be blessed in the son of David. Who are all the nations blessed in? Well, the offspring of Abraham. The psalmist says that's going to come to pass through the son of David. Zechariah is picking up on these promises. The kingly son of David is mentioned at the beginning of this song. There's an implied reference through the mention of the covenant with Abraham in the middle of the song. And then at the end of the song, Zechariah speaks about the sunrise visiting us from on high. Again, we'll return to that image later in the sermon. Zechariah says this sunrise will give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. Well, that sounds quite a lot like a verse from Isaiah that we read at Christmas time that goes like this. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. Why, Isaiah? What, what is this light shining on people in the darkness? Well, Isaiah says the light is shining now because to us a child is born. To us, a son is given. Isaiah says that this child will sit where? On the throne of his father, David, and reign over his kingdom. What is Zechariah doing in this passage? Well, from start to finish, he is singing about the king, about the son of David. Friends, here's why this matters. Zechariah is finding joy in something beyond his immediate personal circumstances. Zechariah is concerned with more than just how it's going for me right now. In that way, Zechariah's song is a lot like Mary's song, which we looked at a few weeks ago. If I were Zechariah in this moment, this is the only song that I would have bandwidth to sing. I would say, blessed be the Lord who has given me the child I've been praying for. How difficult, how painful it has been for my wife and me to be childless 
all these years, but now I have a son. And he is like sunshine to my life. I am thrilled to hold him. I can't wait to watch him grow. I thank God for this son. That's the song I would sing. And you know what? There's actually nothing wrong with that song. That's a really good song. There are songs like that in the Psalms. But the testimony of those who have had a child... The testimony of those who have ever unwrapped any kind of earthly gift is that as wonderful as these things are, they are not solid foundations for our joy and our peace. Friends, listen, it's good that we would rejoice and even sing about God's earthly gifts to us. It's good that we would be happy about good circumstance. It would be, I'm sorry, it's good that we would mourn our difficult circumstances. It would be wrong not to. But listen, if if the thing that makes your heart sing is here on earth, then your joy and your peace will be terribly fragile. Saints, this is one of the reasons it's so important that we gather to worship every Sunday because our hearts need to be recalibrated to sing about the King. Sunday after Sunday, we need to get together and sing about King Jesus to remind ourselves that we have stable joy in all that God has promised to us in the Lord Jesus. As we ride the ups and the downs of life in a broken world, our hearts need a song more stable than our circumstances. And Zechariah's song this morning invites us into the secure joy of worshiping King Jesus, of considering, celebrating singing about all that he is and all that he's done. Zechariah is doing what we've done this morning, what we do, saints, every Sunday. Zechariah is doing, saints, what I hope that you do on your own in private every day as you spend time in God's word and in prayer. Zechariah is singing about the king. The second question to ask of our text this morning What will John do? Well, John is a newborn baby when Zechariah, his dad, sings this song. So he doesn't realize that he only gets two verses in his dad's song, as opposed to the ten that Jesus gets. But we can assume that even if John knew that, he wouldn't mind. Because what we see in Zechariah's prophetic song that John will do is that he will point to the king. What is Zechariah doing? He's singing about the king. What will his son John do? He will point to the king. There in verses 76 and 77, in this tender, beautiful moment, Zechariah speaks to his baby son John about the role that he'll play in the events that are unfolding. Look there in verses 76 and 77. Zechariah says, and you, child, shall be called the prophet of the Most High, for you shall go before the Lord 
to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. What does it mean that John will go before the Lord to prepare his ways? Will all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, speak about the ministry of John the Baptist? And all four Gospels tell us that John did basically two things. First, John called people to repent from sin. And that was the point of John's baptism. John's baptism was a sign of the cleansing that God's people needed and would receive if they would turn to him in faith and repentance. John called people to repent from sin. The second thing that John did was that he drew attention to Jesus. Before Jesus was on the scene, when people started to wonder whether John himself might be the Christ, one of the Gospels tells us this, John, quote, confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. John consistently drew attention away from himself toward Jesus by saying things like this, after me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. John says, I baptize you with water. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. When Jesus arrives on the scene, John directs everybody's attention to Jesus. He says things like this, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John the Baptist, although he appears in the New Testament, has been described as the last of the Old Testament prophets. There's a sense in which the ministry of all the Old Testament prophets is recapitulated in John. What did the prophets do? They called people to repentance, and with one unified mouth, they predicted the coming of the son of David. Zechariah is saying John is going to do exactly that. John will point people to the king. Franconia Baptist Church, that's what we're called to do now. Who now has been entrusted with the witness of the apostles and the prophets to the son of David? In other words, who has been entrusted by God with the message of his word? That's us. That's the church. None of us is John the Baptist. But like John, we have been given the honor of spreading the knowledge of salvation in the forgiveness of sins by pointing to King Jesus. I mentioned earlier that Marcus and I have just spent uh, some time in Turkey and in the United Arab Emirates visiting some of our missionaries. Well, on our second night in Turkey, I was massively jet-lagged and could not sleep but I didn't want to wake Marcus up. So I went down to the lobby of the hotel where we were staying to work on, in fact, this sermon. It was like 1.30 a.m. when I started. And there was a Turkish man uh, working in the lobby of the hotel 
who really wanted to talk to me, notwithstanding the fact that he spoke basically no English, and I spoke literally no Turkish. So he gets his phone out, and he starts using Google Translate. He comes over, sits down, and starts typing things into Google Translate. I'm on my laptop, so I say, okay, here we go. So I start typing things into my laptop on Google Translate. And I'm thinking, dude, can you not see that I am a jet-lagged and miserable foreigner who wants to be left alone, you know? (laughs) But this man, Ibrahim, he asks about why I'm here. And I tell him, well, I'm I'm a Christian pastor, and I'm visiting my friend, another Christian pastor, Andy Johnson. Uh, to, to encourage him and to worship with him on Sunday. And Ibrahim tells me that he is a Muslim. And I'm thinking, okay, surely Google Translate does not give me a sufficient connection with a total stranger to speak about matters of eternal importance at 2 a.m., right? Surely I am off the hook for not evangelizing this man because we literally don't speak the same language. But as the conversation continues, I ask Ibrahim, do you know any Christians? And he says, no, I don't. Ibrahim does not know anyone who can give him the knowledge of salvation in the forgiveness of his sins by pointing him to Jesus. So for an hour or two, we use Google Translate to speak with each other about Islam and about Christianity, and I really try to make the conversation about Jesus. At the end of the conversation, I give Ibrahim my super cheap English Bible, and I tell them that I'll pray for him. Friends, as I tell that story, I'm so aware that that is not job done sharing the gospel with Ibrahim. Ibrahim needs more than a stranger at 2 a.m. on Google Translate. Ibrahim needs Christians in his life to point him to Jesus. Friends, that's why it's not a foolish sacrifice that the Johnsons and the Snyders and the Rochesters have left their homes to serve churches in less comfortable places so that people who otherwise might not hear about Jesus might be pointed to him and might find the knowledge of salvation in the forgiveness of their sins. So brothers and sisters, if you've been saved by Jesus, who in your life might God want you to speak with about Jesus? Who in your life might God want you to point to the King? Friends, what a wonderful thing to pray about. Christian, pray that God would give you opportunities and courage and wisdom and love to open your mouth and speak about Jesus with those in your life who don't know him. If, listen, if speaking with others about Jesus is not something that you feel you're able to do, brother, sister, why not talk to another Christian about that? Uh, find someone in the congregation and say, hey, you know, I, I want to grow in this. Do you do this? How do you do this? How can I grow in this? Our sister Suzanne has done a wonderful job of curating resources about how to share your faith in the Franconia Baptist Church library. Saints, as a church, we're called not only to sing about God's King, to find joy in Him, but to point our lost world to Him. 
just like John the Baptist does. We've seen what Zechariah is doing as he sings our text. We've seen what John will do as foretold in our text's song. Third and final question to answer from our text this morning. What will Jesus do? Zechariah is singing about the king. John will point to the king. King Jesus is the blazing center of our passage. What's he doing that's so worthy of our attention? I want us to answer that question by looking at the two primary images used to describe Jesus in this passage. What are the two poetic images that Zechariah employs? Well, the first image is that of the horn. We saw that back at the beginning of the song when Zechariah says that God has raised up a horn of salvation for us by raising up Jesus. Well, it is said that the king of the beasts is the lion, and that's a deserved title. The lion has got some serious fangs and claws. But if you've watched many nature videos of African wildlife, you'll know that there is a species that regularly puts the lion in his place, and that is the Cape Buffalo. The Cape Buffalo has no fangs. The Cape Buffalo has no claws. But the Cape Buffalo got himself some serious horns. Listen, not even a lion wants to end up on the wrong side of a powerful horn. I'll leave the rest to you to discover on YouTube. Zechariah is probably comparing Jesus to a wild ox horn rather than a buffalo horn, uh, but the point is the same. By calling Jesus a horn, Zechariah is saying that Jesus will oppose and destroy all of the enemies of God's people. There in both lines of verse 71, Zechariah says that the result of God raising up this horn is that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. There in verse 74, we see again the mention of deliverance from enemies because God has raised up this mighty horn. Now, here's what's very curious about Zechariah saying that at the beginning of Luke. Luke is recording this song for us, but he makes very clear that Jesus did not bring the oppressive rule of the Roman Empire to an immediate end. In fact, uh, the Gospel of Luke is the first of a two-volume work, Luke-Acts, and by the end of the second volume, Acts, there are still Roman and Jewish authorities persecuting the people of King Jesus. And even today, Christians have enemies who persecute them, sometimes even to death. And that invites the question, what does it mean for Jesus to be a horn of salvation, given that Jesus has not yet fully and finally delivered all of his people from all of their enemies? Well, here I think is one instance in which it's helpful to remember what we've been seeing about the kingdom of God Uh, from the gospel of Mark this year. Luke and Mark are on the same page about this. Remember, as we've studied through Mark, we've said that the kingdom of God is inaugurated at the first coming of Jesus, and it is consummated at the second coming of Jesus. Or if you don't 
if you're not helped by those words, we might say that the work of King Jesus has a powerful start at his first coming and a climactic conclusion at his second coming. Well, here's what that means for the idea that Jesus is a horn of salvation. At his first coming, Jesus has already stabbed his horn through the heart of all God's worst enemies. King Jesus has freed us from the tyranny of Satan. King Jesus has shattered the reign of sin in the hearts of his people. King Jesus has promised that the the persecution we experience from our our human enemies, he's promised to work that for our good. King Jesus has plunged his horn through the heart of death. Death is not the end of the story for the Christian because Jesus is the horn of salvation who died and rose. Jesus has already done all that. And brothers and sisters, when King Jesus comes back, he will finish the job. He will fully and finally destroy all of the enemies of all of God's people. Satan will be thrown into hell. No more to tempt, no more to afflict. All who persist in rebellion against King Jesus will be judged. Sin will be totally and completely eradicated from the lives of God's people. Oh, that day when freed from sinning, we will see his lovely face. We sing sometimes. God's people will be raised to life with death and tears abolished because Jesus is the horn of salvation. That's the first image for the Lord Jesus we see in Zechariah's song, The Horn. The second image, even more sweetly, is the image of the sunrise. Jesus is not only a powerful horn, but a glorious sunrise. I love this. Look down at verses 76 and 77, where, where Zechariah is addressing his son, John. We're going we're gonna to warm up, run up to this image of the sunrise. There in verse 76, Zechariah tells his son, And you, child, shall be called the prophet of the Most High, for you shall go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. Why? Because of the tender mercy of our God. Stop right there. This is too good to pass up. God saw that we had sinned damnably against him. And because of our sin, we were destined for hopeless darkness for all eternity. But God has not treated us as our sins deserve. What has motivated God's acts toward us, in fact? His tender mercy. What does God's tender mercy move him to give us? There in the second half of verse 78, Zechariah says, whereby, or in other words, because of the tender mercies of God, the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. Saints, do you feel the power of that image? Zechariah says that apart from God's mercy, we dwell in the darkness 
when life is good and comfortable, that sounds really melodramatic. I'm like, wow, like it's, it's not that dark, is it, right? But my friend, haven't you yet lived long enough to feel the darkness? Haven't you felt the emptiness, the futility, the hopelessness, even the pointlessness of life in a broken world? Haven't you had moments when it becomes clear to you that apart from Jesus, life is a sick dark merry-go-round that ends in death, right? Haven't you had moments when the anesthesia of busyness and pleasure wear off long enough to see how dark it really is? Friends, listen, this is the wonderful news of the gospel. God saw that we were sitting in darkness, and because of his tender mercy, he sent the sunrise named Jesus. Maybe it's because we feel the darkness so painfully that we love to sing about Jesus as the sunrise. Come thou dayspring from on high. Disperse the gloomy clouds of night and death's dark shadows put to flight. Right? Hail the heaven born Prince of Peace. Hail the what? The Son of Righteousness. Light and life to all he brings, risen with healing in his wings. Melt the what? Melt the clouds of sin and sadness. Drive the dark of doubt away. Giver of immortal gladness, fill us with what? With the light of day. Friends, without Jesus, we would spend eternity in the darkness because of our rebellion against the God of light. But because Jesus was born, because the light of the world entered his own creation, because Jesus lived the life we should have lived, Because Jesus died in the darkness, by the way, on the cross. And three days later, rose from the dead at dawn, by the way. Now all who trust in Jesus to save them from their sins are brought into the light of friendship and fellowship with God. Jesus says it like this in John chapter 8. He says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Do you notice the final result of this sunrise there in verse 79? That last line of Zechariah's song says that this sunrise has come to guide our feet into the way of peace. Friend, whether or not you realize it, peace is what you really want. Peace is what your heart is looking for. Uh, The peace that Zechariah is talking about here, it is the deepest and most comprehensive kind of well-being that comes from the knowledge of God's love. Zechariah says that because the sunrise has visited us from on high, because Jesus shines light where there was darkness, We now walk, who know him, in the path of peace. We can have peace in the deepest part of us, in the knowledge of God's love and forgiveness. 
put it all together, the image of the horn and the image of the sunrise, and you arrive where Zechariah does, right in the middle of his song, there in verse 74. What will Jesus do? Jesus will grant, verse 74, that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. What is Zechariah doing? He's singing about the king. What will John do? He's pointing to the king. What will King Jesus do? Jesus, the horn, Jesus, the sunrise, will save us from all our fears so that we might serve God. Friends, do you see how this leads us to ask one more question? which is, what, what should we do? What should we do? We'll look no further than verse 74. We should serve God without fear in holiness and righteousness before Him all our days. Right, Christian, you realize that there's, there's no contradiction between God's tender mercies that lead Him to forgive your sins and God's call on your life to walk in holiness. Both spring from His love. Because the way of holiness and righteousness is the way, Zechariah says, of peace. The life full of singing about Jesus, pointing people to Jesus, serving Jesus in holiness and righteousness without fear. That is the path that leads to peace. In His tender mercy, God has saved us so that we might have the joy of walking in this way. Let me close with this. Brothers and sisters, in this life now, we do enjoy peace. We have been saved from our enemies. We can serve God without fear. We do grow in holiness and righteousness. The sunrise has already burst across the horizon. But our great joy and peace come from the knowledge that this is only the beginning the kingdom has been inaugurated, and one day when the king returns, it will all be brought to a glorious fulfillment. And for now, the future joy of this gift that we've unwrapped bleeds back into our present moment, and it makes us glad. Let's pray that God would give us a greater share in this joy. Please pray with me now. Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus, the horn of salvation, who saves us from all our enemies. We thank you that because of your tender mercies, the sunrise of Christ's redemption has visited us from on high to bring us out of darkness, to bring us into the light of fellowship with, with you, the living God. Lord, we pray that you would make us people who every day of our lives sing this song, whose joy is rooted in who Christ is and what Christ has done. Would you help us to be people who gladly, lovingly, boldly point to the King that more and more people might find the way of peace and the knowledge of salvation and the forgiveness of their sins through Christ. We ask all these things in his name. Amen.